TV, comics, movie stars, hit singles and some toys. It's trivia and dirty jokes, an evening with the boys. Once is never good enough for something so fantastic. So here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Colossal classic. Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and we're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a writer, producer, director, activist, and one of the busiest and most popular actors of the last six decades. You know his work from movies such as The Trip, The Wild Angels, The Hired Hand, Race with the Devil, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, Wanda Nevada, The Limey, Escape from L.A., Ghost Rider, 310 to Yuma, and Yuli's Gold, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award as Best Actor. And, of course, as the star, producer, and co-writer of one of the most iconic and groundbreaking films in the history of American cinema, Easy Rider. His newest film is Boundaries, co-starring Christopher Plummer, and he'll be seen in the new Amazon action series, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. Along his fascinating journey, he's met, worked with, and befriended a who's who of 20th century pop culture figures, including Marlon Brando, Jack Nicholson, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, Pablo Picasso, Bob Dylan, Christopher Lee, Mick Jagger, Warren Beatty, Jacques Cousteau, <laughs> Jean Cocteau. Jean Cocteau. <laughs> Maybe he met Jacques Cousteau I, too. I don't. I cause he came in. He was dripping wet, and 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 he smelled like trout. <laughs> He, he had a little octopus <laughs> hanging from his ear. <laughs> and, of course, his father, the late, great Henry Fonda. Please welcome to the podcast a man who's seen it all and done it all, including sharing a stage with Salvador Dali, dropping acid with the Beatles, and even playing touch football with Elvis Presley, a genuine counterculture icon, the legendary Peter Fonda. What a great, great opening that was, Gilbert. Thank you very much. I didn't know you knew that much about what I was up to. 
I didn't know anybody under, yeah. would, would be able to catch it. I thought, I'm out here alone, but let's just keep on dancing. And before anything else, if we can play a little snippet from the Beatles' Revolver album uh. of <laughs> She Said, She Said. Oh, yeah. Okay, Peter, <laughs> the story oh, man, behind sure? this Beatles song. Maybe this is the only crowd I can actually tell this story to. <laughs> because other people will think, no, nah, he's got to be kidding. Uh, I got a call from Crosby and then from uh, Derek Taylor. David Crosby. David Crosby. Yeah. And uh, so Cross called me and then Derek Taylor, uh, the Beatles kind of road manager thing. And the lads would love to see you and meet you. I said, well, that's terrific. And, you know, I love musicians. I love, I've known some of the best in the world. This would be great to meet them. I drove over there. They were living in a house up uh, Benedict, Benedict Canyon, Los Angeles, staying there, I should say, in 1965. And in this particular house, I mean, we go up Benedict Canyon. And in a moment, Benedict Canyon takes this big horseshoe turn and starts climbing up on the to the right, and that back canyon in the back of that turn was just filled with young people. There wasn't a sycamore or a succotash or whatever they had up there left. There was nothing living. There was just the hills were alive with children, and it was really frightening. They were all in there screaming. I came in my XKE. <laughs> no, it's my XKSS. Get that right. The SKSS, which is a beautiful Jaguar, right-hand drive, um, and it was British racing green. I thought, what better to drive? First of all, I had to shift it, and you, unfortunately, you're just a microphone. You can't really see what I'm doing. But I arrived, and um, I'm meeting the guys, and they're really cool. And, you know, Paul's the, the ambassador of the group, and everything's groovy. And uh, there's Crosby and then McGuinn. And so, you know, we're, we're cool. Everything's fine. And... Then I found out we're going to take LSD. Whoa. Oh, all right. I'm up for that. Why not? <laughs> and so we did. Crosby, of course, brought in the LSD. So it was primo quality. And they all sat at this huge table for lunch. I mean, this banquet of stuff on the table. And of course, unfortunately, I said, you know, if you really want to have this trip right, don't eat all this food. And they just acted like, oh, fuck you. And they did it. Um, anyway, we all got on the trip. And it was wonderful. I mean, it, it was strange, too, in its own way. And Crosby came up to me during this thing, and he said, you got to talk to George. I'm white, because he's freaking out. What's wrong? He thinks he's dying. I said, Cross, that's what this drug does. You think you're dying. Your, your brain's going to try to hold on, but you're supposed to let it go. Yeah. Uh, you go tell that to George. I said, why me? Well, because you know. I said, no, that's not right. It's because I'm the oldest guy here, right? That's why I'm going to go tell. I'm the one to bring this news to George. 
Yeah, go ahead. Please do it, Fonda. Okay, this is me. I went down. There's George and John sitting at a table. We've all moved outside so we can know that we can overcome all the screaming. That's not going to interrupt our gig of taking LST. <laughs> at any rate, so I'm, I'm talking to George, and I, I said, you know what, George? I know what it's like to be dead. And let me tell you, it's not a problem. In fact, it's probably the most relaxing moment you're going to have. Uh, because I die, I've I've died three times. Three times. I've died three times on an operating table, lost too much blood, my heart had stopped, you know, three times, and um, so basically I died. But the thing is, I can tell you it's okay because it's really smooth, it's really calm. It's I, I know what it's like to be dead. You know, it's I'm telling you, don't worry. This drug is making your brain worry about it. But that's your point is to say, fuck the brain, let it go and get involved in, in the whole thing. And, you know, Lennon's listening to me and George is looking at me and I don't know if I look like a cucumber to these guys. I have no idea, but I continue on saying, you know, because I'm serious, George, I know what it's like to be dead. I've died. It was a, a shooting accident when I was a little boy. My my parents thought, I, or my, my family thought that I was trying to kill myself because my mother had that year, but that's not really what was happening. It was a stupid accident by a little boy, you know, so, and everything was all right, but I wasn't, I was dying, I had died, but I lived. Obviously, I'm here telling you the story. And so don't worry, relax, take it easy, take the trip, just flow with it. And Lennon looked at me, he said, man, who put all that shit in your head, man? You know what? You're making me feel like I've never been born. And his eyes made a little peek at it. And I thought, that was pretty far out. And let it go, because I'm not going to sit there with any longer trying to explain to George to relax and let it go. <laughs> I want to go have my trip myself. And uh, I just thought, that's that. Little did I know, the next year, out would come Revolver, and she said, she said, I know what it's like to be dead. I know what it's like to be sad, and you're making me feel like I've never been born. When I was a boy, everything was right. How did you hear it? How did it come to your attention that, that it was a song? I played the bloody song. <laughs> <laughs> you bought the album, put it on, and... No word. What the hell? And I thought, far out. Well, you know what? No one will cover that tune, and um, they'll, we'll just keep quiet about that. <laughs> well, of course, all the Beatlemaniacs over the years want to know what the hell is she said, she said all about. That doesn't, you know, what kind of sense is that? This is before Sgt. Pepper's. Right. And, um, you know, I didn't say anything until... Lennon said something in a Rolling Stone article, and then I said, well, if he's going to talk about it, I'll talk about it. And I said, yeah, that happened, and this is the way it happened. And uh, I thought, well, nobody will cover that song. Wrong. Right. I was down in Charleston, South Carolina, shooting a show in 98, and I was driving my rent-a-car and on the radio because Government Mule, and they do a cover of She Said. No shit. That is totally cool. But I just had to pull over. I was flat-footed. So many years later in Charleston, right, thinking, I can't believe this. This you're, is you're part of Beatles lore. Yeah, it's you know, it's cool. an amazing thing that I've had this incredible life. But to be part of a Beatles song, yeah, it's yes, playing touch football with Elvis was pretty far out. Also but, strange. <laughs> That's course, he wore a hel- uh, he wore a helmet with a uh, it was touch football. <laughs> uh, he had a helmet with a, uh, a face guard on it, you know. And he's absolutely beautiful, I'll tell you that, but uh, cheapers. Because when we were looking for this song, we found about 70 covers oh, really? before, a lot of covers, before yeah. we found the Beatles. 
Yeah. I had no idea. Had the Beatles, the Beatles were one. the hardest one to find. Yeah. All of them. <laughs> I should tell people, too, that's in your book. This book is 20 years old, Peter, but it's great. Your memoir, Don't Tell Dad, uh, which I read cover to cover. And the, the, the Elvis stuff is in there. The Beatles stuff is in there. Uh, the stuff that Gilbert alluded to about Salvador Dali, oh, yeah, which is all fascinating. How did you wind up on stage in a performance with Salvador Dali? We and, did ha- and how he learned to scuba dive. <laughs> Don't forget the Jacques Cousteau. Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go with that one too, Gilbert. No, no sweat. But um, yeah, um, I had met Dali in Europe and uh, I was at this fellow's uh, really wildly painted apartment in New York City. He was a, a real mover and shaker, so he had a lot of people in there. And Dolly was there with his witchy girlfriend and her little friend who was kind of cute. And all kinds of other things were happening. And uh, I was very interested in Dolly and wondering what the hell he was doing here. This was in New York City in 65. And his witchy girlfriend who really thought she was a witch, you know, and could go do extra things that the rest of us couldn't. And I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to fuck around with this one. So I said, "Uh, you see that man over there sitting at the edge of that table, sitting on the floor there? That man is a very good friend of mine. His name is Robert Walker. And uh, his mother is Jennifer Jones. His father was the actor Robert Walker Sr. Now, Bobby... He doesn't smoke. But watch this. I'm going to make him go for that pack of cigarettes and take a cigarette. I had no idea, of course, that this would play out, but then why not? So I'm looking at Bobby thinking, you need to smoke, dude. Just quietly, you know, not, not moving my lips. And son of a bitch, he reaches for the pack of cigarettes, takes out the cigarette and fires it up. I said, what more do you need to know? <laughs> And that freaked they her. bought it. She, she thought, whoa, I'm going to withdraw my entry into this race. You know? And uh, yeah, so that was Dali. And Cocteau, I met. Not Cousteau. Not Cousteau. <laughs> Though I, I, I got to know Cousteau's kids really well. Oh. Uh, but Cocteau, uh, I met with my father, my second stepmother, and my sister Jane in Antibes in France. And we had driven, we were on our way to Pamplona from Cap Ferrat, where Picasso had a villa. I met him too. And I'd seen Cocteau's uh, drawings inside this, in Villefranche-sur-Mer, there's a little chapel, fisherman's chapel. Inside, he's drawn all these angels flying around. You know, they're really far out. They had hair under their arms. I thought that was really cool. And um, so there he is. I'm 17. But I know who he is. It's an icon. Because I know Bunuel. Sure. <laughs> and uh, he's talking to my father, and he's talking about film, and he's been very gracious, except he says that film couldn't be considered, considered a fine art um, because of its nature. It he could said, not be considered could a fine art. not be considered fine art because of its nature. Mind you, he, Picasso... Bunuel and Dali made the Andalusian dog, sure. Chandelier, yeah. the Golden Age, all these Lodge door. wacky, bloody fucking movies. So crazy and wonderful. 
So yeah, and they were works of art, as far as I was concerned. Beauty and the Beast is a work of art. Beauty and the Beast at La, La Yeah, they're Boy, great that films. Was freaky. They're great films. Absolutely great films. So he said something to my father, which was either really denigrating to my father or not. I didn't care because I was most interested myself. And that was that art, all art, is 98% accident, 1% logic, and 1% intellect. The idea is not a mistake. You can't make it happen. That's not an accident. It's manufactured. And I've, I, I kind of studied on that for a while. We went over the hill on the back way, going over the hill meaning it's going over the Pyrenees into northern Spain. We went the back road because my second stepmother, who is this Italian stronza, so my Italian listeners will know what I mean and what I think about I know the that Stronza. Word. <laughs> and um, she was having a passport left. <laughs> and so she didn't have a passport, so we had to go in a back road. And I had to go in with my father and talk to these guys in Spanish and uh, say, you know, we've got brought them a carton of cigarettes. And we did all this stuff. And oh, sure, go on through. So my sister and the Stronza never had to go in. And we went down to Pamplona, uh, where I met a friend of mine and uh, Jane's boyfriend at the time, Goy Franciscus, James Franciscus. Oh, James Franciscus. Uh -huh. Remember him, oh, Gilbert? yes. Sure. And so James stayed with me and my friend, Jimmy Gibson, um, at this little pensione, whilst everybody else stayed in this big hotel. I got shuttled off. But uh, Goy was pretty cool. That was his nickname, Goy. Franciscus. And I mean, we were so wrecked that first night. We had all the white shirt, the white <laughs> pants, the red sash, and drinking wine. So there's just wine all over us. We, you know, we were totally crazed in this little square, the main square of the town. And the next day, after carpet bombing the inside of this Pansione courtyard with puke, <laughs> literally carpet bombing it terribly, I felt awful. Got up in the morning, went out, started with the bulls. Every step I took, I would hear what I would later know as the chimes of freedom. God boy, God boy, you know, <laughs> and running like mad. You see, you have to start with the bulls when you run with the bulls. You don't get to jump in partway through. And thank God I made it into the big arena. So we did that, and then we went, we're, I'm still reeling and rocking from the night before, but we know to meet my father, the Stronza, and my sister, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, doing the niceties. And there's Ernest Hemingway. Wow. And he hears that my friend Jimmy and I had just run in front of the bulls, and he was much impressed. So we were very impressed that... Ernest Hemingway was impressed with us. We were covered with purple and these white. He was just wild looking. And my father was very, absolutely having nothing to do with it. He made a, a, a book. He did a book called Fun My Life. Warts and all. He didn't even get near the warts, I promise you. Interesting. And the all was hardly full. And... At that book, he said how he was there the first day and the bulls run in and then he, he could see me there running and he was so proud of me. It took that many years later and him wanting to be proud of me. I don't think he really was. I think he thought I was an idiot and I, in a way I was, but I made it 
and there was there was Hemingway saying all these groovy things about, oh, God, you did it. You're a true man. <laughs> so you met Hemingway and Dolly and Cocteau, and, Cocteau. and Picasso. And that same summer. Wow. I met Cocteau <laughs> Picasso. We have to amend the intro. <laughs> <laughs> and and now, now your father, the great Henry Fonda, mm-hmm. uh, he, you know, great and highly respected actor, but as growing up, what was he like as a father? He wasn't. Um, and I had all this angst for a long time in my life. But from my perspective now, and it has been for a while, I look back and realize what I learned from him. He never had a lesson. He had lots of arguments and he had lots of, you don't do that, you don't do this, this is not exciting. A lot of uh, don't do's and very little let's do. Uh, so it was interesting for me to know that he would make that bend to <laughs> to say he was so proud of me looking back on it, but at the moment disgusted with me. And I would realize, yes, okay, that's probably like most parents and the offsprings. Only the thing is, my parent was the fucking circus. Every light was on him. Sure. He, my father was a brilliant actor, stage and screen. And I can say that meaningfully because I am a writer, producer, director, as you said, Gilbert. I, I do all that stuff because I like to. I love to do it. And my father's always said, how can you do this? Two th- how can you act and direct at the same time? I said, snap. I know what the scene should be like. So I'm in it. I just have to trust the cameraman. My first cameraman was Vilmo Schegman. Yes. When I was producing uh, uh, the hired and hired directing hand. the hired hand. Good flick. Boy, was I lucky, man, to have Vilmo. But before that, for Easy Rider, I had Laszlo Kovacs. So when we first hired Laszlo, he was Larry Kovacs, then he being Leslie. And then in the filming, he became Laszlo. It's far out. I wanted to use Laszlo when I made the hired hand because I had such a great experience with him in producing Easy Rider. And he it was a wonderfully creative person. I, I wanted him. But unfortunately, he was making Paul Mazursky's Alex in Wonderland. Oh, yeah. So he said, I can't, but you remember, Peter, that fellow that would come in with a little beard and watch some of the dailies? Yeah. Well, he's my mentor. Guys, I know what mentor means. And if Larry Leslie Laszlo had 19 films in his pocket before he films Easy Rider. His mentor's got to have 20 or 30 or 40 films in his pocket. I know what mentoring it means. We should tell our listeners to check out Hired Hand, which is a very good film and a good-looking film. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, very good. Uh, I was Good very performances, too. Yourself and, and Warren, Warren Oates and Verna Bloom. Verna Bloom. Oh, really and good. Bruce Langhorn. This is music. Yeah. With Warren Oates, Verna Bloom, some other great character actors... Yeah, Severn Darden. Uh, Severn Darden. Great, remember him, Gilbert, from Second City? He was a Chicago Second yeah. City guy. And he yes. plays a great heavy. And I used to see him here in New York wearing shawls and wild things. Yeah. You know, Severn was really... Gilbert, you'd know him if you saw him. Oh, yeah. yeah. Gilbert, I mean, he was really known for being His family a comedian. comes from New Orleans. His father was like either the mayor or one of the top government officials in Louisiana, especially in New Orleans. I think he was in the Compass Players, too, the original was, Second City with, he with was uh, the Joan Compass Rivers Play. and those people and Alan yep. Arkin. Alan Arkin. But he's very good. He plays a great heavy. And and you were introduced to Smoking Grass 
by someone who wouldn't surprise anyone. <laughs> oh, you know everything. The though. son of Robert Mitchum, <laughs> yeah, Robert who Mitch- went to jail. <laughs> yeah, he did. Years ago, mm-hmm. the smoking grass. Yes, uh, that's true. Uh, we were in London. We were making a film. Carl Foreman was directing the film. And I can tell you the theme of the film is War's Hell, War's Hell, War's Hell, War's Hell, War's Hell, War's Hell. But there were a lot of us in it. George Papardi, Was Eli that the Wallach, Victors? The Victors. Yeah. George Papardi, Eli Wallach, uh, Jim Mitchum, myself, George Hamilton. Right. Lot, you know, uh, some really fine actors were in there, too. And I remember uh, hearing from Mitchum, hey, Fonda, what? I got some bong. I had no idea what the fuck is bong. Oh, <laughs> uh, you do? Oh, yeah, it's really good. And you want some? <laughs> oh, you bet. Yeah, sure. Bong? Yeah, you know, it's that's African for, for grass. Oh, yeah, I just never heard it called bong before. I'd never heard it called anything before. I knew these jokes that my first stepmother had told me that were active jokes of people going, all right, man, this and this. And so I knew that this is something, but I had no idea what pot was. I wished that maybe I'd learned about it when I was 15, but I'm probably glad that I didn't. Now, I've stopped on my way back from Shepherd and Studios into the center of London, and my, I went to a little curio shop and bought this small corncob pipe. That's what I'll smoke it in. So uh, Mitchum has told me, when you get to the hotel in your room, uh, give me a call. I said, okay. So I did. Mitchum said, fine, come down to this floor and knock twice on the door. I mean, this is getting weird and wonderful. So I did. I went down there and knocked twice on the door, and then he opens it up. I can see Papard's in the back there and some other people, and he comes out into the hall, looks around, and he has hooded eyes just like his father, Big Bob. It's okay, Fonda. He had this long, this envelope folded over, and it had something in it. I did not know what. He said, now, uh, you have to clean this. Whoa, clean something. Far out. I I have no idea. What the fuck does that mean? (laughs) To myself, I'm saying, what the fuck does he mean, clean it? So I said, clean it? Well, you know, it's got the the seeds and stems. Oh, right. I'm I'm sorry. It's always been clean before I... (laughs) I never had a, a puff of this shit in my life. And then I'm trying to tell big hooded-eyed Jim that, oh, yeah, oh, I just never heard it called bong, and I've never had have to clean it before. I had no idea. I went back up to my room where I cleaned this shit, seeds and stems out of there. I packed it in the pipe, and my first wife is there wondering what I'm up to, and I start puffing it, and I say, here, now, you try it, and she tried it, and uh, we both had smoked cigarettes, and she tried it, but she coughed, 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 and I started to cough, but she was coughing much more. So I said, no, no, like this. <sighs> Go ahead. And so four or five times like this, and later, and I'm starting to, whoa, this is kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> She's pissed off, but I don't, I'm just, this is not bad. Whoa, am I hungry? <laughs> Fast. Son of a bitch, I am really hungry. <laughs> so I grabbed the menu from road service. I ordered just about everything on the bloody menu. And by the time the food came in the room, I'm in the bed with the covers pulled up just below my eyelids, right? Laughing my fucking ass off. <laughs> I ate everything on the plate, on the table, everything. I ate it all. I just vacuumed up. <laughs> <laughs> and I had been such a skinny kid for so long and such a disappointment to my father. I thought, God, this is fucking great. I'm 
I could have put on some weight. My father will like me. I can't fucking believe this. Why didn't this happen to me earlier? <laughs> and my first wife, she was so pissed off that I was absolutely ripping off. That's funny. And uh, that's the first time I smoked the kind. And um, it, it gave me a whole new way of looking at the day. <laughs> Which is the, the line I gave to Jack when I said, how's your joint, George? Hmm. Well, uh, it, it went out. I, 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 I got talking so much, it went out. I said, save it. <laughs> we'll do it first thing in the morning. Gives you a whole new way of looking at the day. An easy rider. Save it. Yeah. Save it. Well, well, where do I put it? I put it in your helmet. And Harper says, yeah, stick it in your helmet. That's what he does. It's all ad-lib shit. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It. And, um, and you really were smoking an easy rider. I know. And then cocaine with sugar. Do I have oh, that yeah. right? He promised me, fucking Hopper promised me <laughs> that was going to be real coke. Uh-huh. Uh, don't ever snort sugar. <laughs> I wasn't planning to. <laughs> oh, man. The side of your head will absolutely blow away. It's, it you it got is that, Gil? so painful. <laughs> you shouldn't be eating sugar anyway, but it's so fucking painful to snort. Oh, man. Powder sugar. Oh, well, one dreams and one doesn't get the dream coming true. Yeah. Thank you, Dennis, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, yeah. Uh, that was it, yeah. <laughs> and and the, the way you got the idea to shoot Easy Rider was from Jack Valente? Well, I was in Toronto promoting a film, The Trip, which Jack Nicholson had written. Right, the Corman movie. And, uh, and Roger was directing. I'd made Roger promise he was going to take LSC. He did not. He did not direct Jack's script either. It's okay, Roger. I love Roger. He came on this show and claimed that he t- that he dropped acid when he shot the trip. He, he was, said so. He was bullshitting us. Yeah, and me too. <laughs> okay. Um, the truth, but hopefully the, he won't see the truth is out. It, hopefully he won't hear about this and, and hear the show. And, and, <laughs> and send it to him. Call me out. But I was putting on the edge of a pin little things of hash you start burning them with a lighter that's here roger go, you can't see what i'm doing but everybody else can you take the smoke off of the hash burning the end of the pen this is the old way of doing it old school style so i got roger rather cracked that way but i don't know if he ever took lst he said he did with the, the writer chuck yeah. goddammit but anyway i'm up in toronto to promote this film and one of the things that I've learned in promoting film is you'll sit in this room and people will come in. There'll be print people coming in. There'll be radio people coming in. They do all this, do that. And some people actually come in and film you for television. So I thought, okay, how can I control this? Ah, well, I had a custom-made double-breasted suit. I had this custom-made Battistoni shirt. Mitchum had told me, this is what I have to do with shirts, get them made for me in Battistoni in, in Rome. And this great Hermes tie, and no shoes, no socks. What happens? In comes the next wave or the first wave. They come in, get set up. They walk in. What do they see? No shoes, no socks. That's the end of their interview. They can't move to the next moment to start asking questions. I now control the interview. Hello. So I did this and... Five or six interviews before lunch. And everybody comes in, looks at the feet, bare on the floor, and loses their interview, and I take it. And I promote the film. I do everything I'm supposed to do. I have fun with it. I joke with it. I do all that stuff. But I don't have to 
suffer their questions because they're so blown away by my no shoes and no socks. So we break for lunch. We all go into this huge hall. I mean, absolutely huge up in the exhibition park in uh, Toronto. And there are probably 1,260 or 70 people in the room. Most of them are exhibitors and distributors in Canada. I'm at this big round table called AIP, American International Pictures, Sam Markoff sure. and, and uh, uh, Jim uh, Nicholson. Nicholson. And I'm there at the table and this is great. I've got no, sh- there's no shoes, no socks on. I'm listening. Up comes this person, Jack Valenti, who was Lyndon Baines Johnson's man that he put in. He was a Texan. And he put him into the Motion Picture Association of America. The MPAA is all mm-hmm. bullshit. It's a total bullshit group. It's the one that decides whether you get an R. In those days, it was M, mature. I didn't, it, they didn't know. I didn't know. I was just listening to this short little guy with the Texas accent. say, my friends, and you are my friends. Son of a bitch said it twice, I promise you. <laughs> like they didn't hear him the first time. My friends, and you are my friends. It's time we stop making movies about motorcycles, sex, like a fucking TV evangelist, mm-hmm. right? sex and drugs, looking right down at me. And more movies like Dr. Doolittle, which cost $27 million. Dr. Doolittle d- did very little. And oh, it's so a, that was my, my trip going home that night. That was my no more sex and motorcycles and drugs, right? Far out. And I've got all these 8 by 10 photographs. I'm signing them, you know. They're, they're, this guy owns four theaters. He's got two dollars. I signed them. Up comes this photograph of me and Bruce Derns, me and Dernsey on a motorcycle, totally backlit. So we're total silhouettes. And it looks like we're riding on the, in the sand. We're riding on the cement paths in Venice at the start of uh, the Wild Angels. And I'm looking at this thinking, who the fucking marketing pulled this photograph for me to gig on? Because, you know, I'm going to say, you know, peace, best wishes, Peter Fonda, those are aware. Because you can't see me. You did this, this, this strange image in full silhouette. As I'm thinking about that, I thought, whoa, that's it. It's not about 100 Hells Angels going on a, to a Hells Angels funeral. It's two guys alone riding across John Ford's West. Perfect. That's great. And we're traveling east. A little homage, German Hesse's journey to the east. I love this. This is great. What happens? They're down there. They've gone to Florida to retire. I hate retirement. It's a death sentence. But they've gone to Florida to retire, and they get there, and then they're killed by these guys who are poachers in the back of their pickup truck. It's filled with ducks in the back. But they don't like the way these two guys look, so they shoot them. Now I backed up to make that happen. When I finally got to the beginning of the story and could tell it beginning to end, I picked up the phone and called Hopper. I said, listen to this, man. And it was 1.30 in the morning in L.A., 4.30 in the morning in T.O. And uh, I told him the story. He said, well, that's great. And what what do you want to do with it? Well, I figure both of us will act, and you'll direct it, I'll produce it. We save some money that way. You want me to direct it? Yeah, man, of course. I mean, you, you already know about framing and stuff. I, I don't know that yet. I've been studying like mad, but you're into it. You know about it and you want to direct. I know we've already written one script together. So, you know, what do you say? Well, I mean, you really want me to direct? Yeah, man. I mean, I really want you to direct. Well, I'm so glad you called me because I was never going to speak to you again. 
<laughs> With that, he takes a, a sip of water. Mm-hmm. I, I can't go into what got him to that way. Just let me tell you that he stormed out of my house after he wanted to direct my album that I was cutting with um, Huey Masekela. He wanted to direct it. I said, Dennis, you don't direct albums. You produce them. <laughs> At any rate, I, he was never going to talk to me again. You're a fucking child, fun. I'm never going to talk to you again. Man, man, can you dig it, man? Man, you didn't. So I, I hired him. I think he resented that. Nevertheless, um, I kept on telling the story, and I'm into detail. I love the detail. So I was into telling the story in detail. Yeah, I've heard you say he told it poorly. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm <laughs> getting there. Oh, okay. we're, we're, now we're going to take a little dido, which will lead into Gilbert's opening. Uh, you did something sexual with your sister? <laughs> So this was September 27, was 1967. And, um, you know, after I'd done that story, I couldn't go back to sleep. I never I hadn't gone to sleep at all. I was just like, wow, I just threw sevens. I could throw them on my shoulder. They'll be seven. Throw them in the bathtub. They'll be seven. I, this is incredible. So with this high, I went into the next day uh, where I didn't have to do press. I just showed up at the luncheon. But this time, the luncheon, I'm up at the big table with the biggies up in the top where the dais where I'd heard from Jack Valenti, no more sex drugs and yeah. motorcycles. I'm up there. And sitting to my right is the gorgeous drop-dead beauty, Jacqueline Bissett. Jackie, I'd known. She's a wonderful gal. And uh, of course, I have the no shoes, no socks on. And so she's smiling, her devastatingly beautiful smile. Here, how oh, you don't have any socks and shoes on? So I, I take my foot and I go, that's because I'm going to stick my foot on your dress. Yeah, he, he's trying to smile like she is, you know. And she stop that. She hits me on the shoulder. I said, no, Jack, you know that's what you want me to do, stick my foot up your dress. And so I'm putting my foot further up her leg. Just stop that. Well, everybody in the audience, this 1,275 people, are wondering, what the hell is she slapping that guy next to her for? Because they're looking at her. She's gorgeous. I'm not. And as I'm teasing you, going to go, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Peter Vaughn, excuse me, Jackie, that's me. <laughs> and I got uh-huh. up and they gave me a gold lighter, one of the long Zippo types. Uh-huh. Had my initials, PF on it, and thank you, uh, Toronto's Showarama, whatever it was, um, September 27, 1970, uh, 1967. And I said, wow, a gold lighter, <laughs> far out. I don't smoke. Cigarettes, just enough of a pause. The Canadians, of course, the Canadians all laughed. And, uh, but I'm sure I can find somebody to do with this. And I put it in my pocket. And I said, you know, I'm here to find out what you can show. I'm like Picasso and his blue period. And I'm bringing my paintings into your galleries. See, Picasso had his blue period. Most people don't understand. He had the blue period because it was the cheapest fucking paint. That's why he didn't. And so he brings his, me as Picasso, I bring my film in to you. And, well, I like it, Mr. Picasso, but frankly, the wife would like a little more red in it. (laughs) The Canadians are loving this. And uh, so I'm not really Picasso, but I need to know what kind of movies you can show in your theaters that will attract your people because that's the kind of movie I want to make for you. It only works when it works for you and me both, and we make money. That's what this is all about. And the only time $27 million should be mentioned is in the box office, never the budget, $1,275 people. 
jumped up and said, yeah. I threw sevens. <laughs> Now, while Gilbert heads into the nutmeg kitchen to steal more Perrier, <laughs> a word from our sponsor. Look at Frank and Gilbert. It would be the thunder. And now, sadly, we return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. You talked, too, about wanting to make films for young people because the kind of stuff that Hollywood was making at that time was stuff like The Last no Bottom Boat That's and right. Dr. Doolittle. That's and they exactly didn't, what I They used. didn't know how to make films for young people, and you thought you did, and you were proven correct. Well, I was a young person. I was also a pothead, and I knew that we had this whole <laughs> <Right>. audience <laughs> out there. Right. And so if you think this is 1967 when I've, I've come up with this idea, they had their own costuming. The hippies, the love people, West Coast, they had their own uh, books, their own poetry, their own art, all those wonderful posters from that time, their own music. And they don't have their own movie, do they? This will be their own movie. Very egotistically of saying that, but nevertheless, I realized I know this audience and Hollywood doesn't. And they're there, and they want to see their film. And and Rip Torn was originally supposed to be... Oh, George Hansen. Yeah, 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 yeah. the Jack Nicholson part. Absolutely right. You know, because Rip was a friend of mine and Hopper's, and um, I knew Rip, and he was from Texas, and Dennis thought, this is a Texas lawyer, so he's perfect. And Rip was all for it. He was on board. We were doing it. And, you know, when I I'd tell the story, I would say that Rip's part of it and all. And uh, when we'd already shot the first week in New Orleans, and we'd come back to write the script with Terry Southern, whom I had run into whilst filming that film, the sex film with my sister. <laughs> Thank you for allowing me to have that opening. And um, we'll get to that. I was up in this castle. We were all living in this bloody castle, or, or, or getting ready. We didn't live there. We lived in hotels in Roscoff. But I hear this cough and snort kind of in the scuffling up. There, everything was stone. It's a bloody castle. And in comes Terry, whom I had known, Terry Southern. And he had been in Rome viewing a cut of Barbarella, which he had written for Jane and Vadim. Vadim was the French director, Roger Vadim, and my, father, my sister's husband at the moment. And he comes coughing in there with a cigarette dangling out of his mouth, and he finds a... You, you, you got any grass? Well, because, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll trade you some Coke for some grass. I, you know what, I'm, I'm really not into the Coke. Um, I already talked too much, but I have some hash. You want some? Yeah. So we smoked some hash. And then uh, he had not been able to see Jane and Vadim yet. So we went down for lunch. And the, in French films, they have the grandest lunches. They have great food and wine, and everybody has as much time as they need to have lunch. So even though everybody was else was off shooting, I thought I would shoot that day. I was in costume. I went down and had lunch with Terry. And, of course, we had some wine, and we were laughing, and we'd had already smoked some hash and, 
it was fun. And he said, what are you doing? What, what's, what's up with you? You can't be just doing this film with you, Jane. I said, oh no, Terry. And I told him the story. And he said, wow, that's the most amazing story I have ever heard. What are you and Den Den, that's how he referred to Dennis. What are you and Den Den going to do? I said, well, you know what? We need to find uh, a writer who can put it in script form for us because we don't have time to do that. And uh, that, because we need a script in order to break it down so mm -hmm. we can produce it in the movie. And Terry said, well, I'm your man. I said, Terry, your price is the budget of the fucking movie. What was the budget of the movie? $375,000. Okay. I brought it in shooting budget, uh, you know, principal photography, 252000 Thanks to Paul Lewis, who was my uh, production manager and the first assistant to Dennis. And he was an amazing man. And he and, uh, and in part, Larry Leslie Laszlo and all that, they made it work. Mm -hmm. I said, I was saying, and, and in part, thanks to your credit cards, too. Uh, we, yes, we made it on my credit <laughs> cards. I paid for all the gas, all the food, all the hotels, everything. I, I built up such a credit in Diners Club and American Express. It was unbelievable. I still have these credits. So I don't use Diners Club anymore. I'm just and, and what got uh, Rick Torn out of the movie was well, I. <laughs> um, Dennis and I were staying up at uh, my family's brownstone on 74th Street in Lexington, the five-story brownstone. And um, I got a call from Rip at the house. And I happened to be there, fortunately. He says, you know what, Fonda, I, I, I can't do this for scale. I can't let Hollywood know I would do something for scale. I said, well, Rip, everybody's doing it for scale except me. And he said, well, I'll, I'll take your deal. I said, I don't think you want my deal, Rip. I don't think you want it. Why? Well, because everybody else is getting scale, but I'm not going to get anything. Why on earth? Because I, all this is, is going to come unsnapped down the line, and I'll be able to stand up and say, there's no flies on my shit, because I did it for free. I paid for it. I credit carded it. I did it all. So he said, well, I think you're nuts. I said, well, I understand, Rip, that you can't do it. I'm sorry. Um, but it's, it's going to be moving right along, because we're, we're on this, and we're going to do it. It says, as long as you're not mad at me. No, Rip, I'm not mad at you. You're a pal. I know you, you know, I love you, Rip, but I appreciate you telling me that now. And I called up Bert Schneider, the man who would give me, who said, I'll give you the money. And Bert Schneider and Bob Rafelson, uh, who did the monkeys. So they had out all this bloody cash. They could afford to give me this cash. And I said, Bert, we just lost Rip, and this is why. And he said, okay, what do you want? I said, I want Jack. And he said, yeah, yeah, so that's who I want. Well, I haven't told uh, Harbor yet that we've lost Rip. And so eventually I told Dennis we lost Rip. And then, of course, um, Martin Luther King got killed, and Dennis was in the middle of talking about flying saucers in this motorcycle movie. <laughs> I'm thinking, flying saucers? I got to get out of here. <laughs> no, this is not working for me. And uh, I called Bert up and I said, I'm, you know, I'm coming home, Bert. Uh, it was too much for me with uh, Martin Luther King getting shot. And I'm going to let Harper and uh, Southern talk about flying saucers. I'm coming home. And tell you the truth, I'm very glad that these flying saucer things were being talked about. 
I found out later that Dennis had taken everything that he had written about the flying saucer scene and had it from a book. And he showed it to me and Bert Schneider where he had taken it. In other words, he plagiarized this whole fucking piece. This whole <laughs> thing about me and Eric Heisman down in Mexico, we've seen 40 of them flying in formation. That was all from this bloody book. So there was going to be flying saucer scenes. I didn't. It, I didn't know. An easy that. rider. Yeah, I, didn't really, I, I, I wasn't quite ready for that. You know what I mean? Right. I was just not. Whoa! It's, I think I, Gilbert was alluding. You were alluding to the the, that, the, the supposed a, fight, a between, fight between 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 oh. Rip and. <laughs> And, and this would evolve into later years of being this tremendous lawsuit. Right. He sued him for defamation, right? Well, it's because Dennis said on television there was a knife fight with Rip. And and I said to Dennis, you can't do that. You got to go back on the show. It was Jay, uh, Jay Leno. And, and say you were just joking. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Entrenched as hell. Typical of Hopper. So I said, well, you're going to get sued, Hoppy. And sure enough... Rip Sudeman won. So, Dennis and I, Michael McClure, and Jack, we were all pitching a story to Bob Ravelson called The Queen. It was for 65000 bucks. We're going to make a story about the assassination of Kennedy. And we're going to be at a table, and we'll all be wearing beaded off-the-shoulder evening gowns, with little purses and we could take anything out of the purses we wanted <laughs> and beside each of us there's four of us or <laughs> yeah we would have the script and we'd be talking about it and it was all about planning this it was dean rusk Ma- uh, mcnamara the the, yeah. the gang it's right? in the book it's fascinating yeah. reading and um bob wasn't really interested uh, I wonder why Jack and Dennis and Michael McClure got up and went to Jack's office. I know they're going to get loaded. And I'm sitting there with Bob, feeling egg on my face. And whilst talking to Bob, this man comes in, very tall, really good-looking guy, blue eyes, piercing blue eyes, and he's got a cast on his leg. So he sat down in the back of where we are. And Bob turned to him and, oh, uh, this is Bert. This is my partner, Bert Schneider. And Bert's going to get up. I said, you know, no, don't get up, Bert. It's, it's okay. Now it don't matter. And he comes over and he sits down. And he said, um, what's going on? And I said, well, I, I was just uh, pitching this story to Bob about this. And Bob said, how's that motorcycle movie you, you got going? I said, oh, you know what? AIP is saying, well, if Hopper finds falls three days behind, we won't take it away. We'll take it away from him and all this shit. And so, and Bert says to Bob, is that a good story? And Bob said, oh, it's the best story I've ever heard. So you think it'll make money? Oh yeah, it'll make money. And so how much do you want for that, Fonda? Uh, 365,000 bucks. Because I had seen the top sheet of Corman's The Wild Angels for 362000 uh-huh. I said, I can do the same thing. I won't be, be paying me and Nancy Snotter 30000 bucks a piece. We'll just do it. I knew I could do it for 360000 bucks, And he said, well, he'd heard the original pitch of the, the, the Queen. And he said, it's easier to raise 360 than it is 60. Is it really a good story, Bob? He said, Bert, it's the best story I've ever heard. Would you come over to my house tonight and tell me the story? I said, you bet. I told it to him four times. Each time he brought in more people. The last time he had people in, 
And he had it being sent to this guy in New York who was listening to the story on the end of a phone, who was one of his brain trusters from Westchester. And um, so I got the money and we shot the film. It's it's one of the great pieces of trivia, too, that monkey money paid for Easy Rider. That's it. I love that. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> and, all, money and also, as good as, as good an actor as Torn is, you know, and I watched Easy Rider again last night. I've seen it many, many times. But you can, now I can't imagine anybody but Nicholson playing George Hansen. Dennis didn't want Nicholson. Um, he said, you know, he's not from Texas. <laughs> I thought, fuck. I said, Dennis, it's called acting. <laughs> he's from New Jersey. <laughs> Dennis, it's called acting. But he stopped acting. He's given up. Dennis... I want Jack. I don't, because he had Jack Sterrett next, who was a, a director, writer, who was also from Texas. So I called Bert up, and I said, Bert, I want Jack. You know that. Dennis doesn't want him because he's born in New Jersey. He's not from Texas. I think Jack's an actor, and I know he's given up acting. I know all this stuff, but I think he's perfect for this role. Best 392 bucks you ever spent? Is that what you said in his That's, AFI ex- tribute? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Of course, don't ever tell anybody that they're not free, because then they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. Oh, yeah, they're going to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. But they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. No, well, don't make them running scared. No, it makes them dangerous. Nicholson, you said he knew from the beginning that was going to be a hit. Yeah, uh, Johnny Hot. Or Hollywood Jack. I have different names I call Nicholson. (laughs) But I love him. And, um, yeah, he... Well, he'd seen how well Corman had done, too, with biker movies. Oh, yeah. I mean, Roger is amazing. He has never lost a dime on any movie he's ever made. (laughs) And I've seen, yeah. Yeah. He he titled his book that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I, I, I really love Roger. And he was originally going to produce the film. He was going to be the executive producer of the film. For AIP. But Sam Markoff and Jim Nicholson were saying, we can't do a movie where you've got this, these hard narcotics at the beginning. It's too much of a, a moral mountain to climb. And I said, no, that's just the thing. And we do that, and then we do this other thing. And at the end, we do the Hollywood thing about having to pay the price for having done this bad thing up front. We get killed. It's just the way we're killed has nothing to do with what's killed right. up front. And so Jim Nicholson and Sam Markoff are trying to digest that descriptive. And Sam... God bless him, says, well, c- can you do it with grass? I said, well, with four triple tractor trailers of, you know, Peterbilt's, yeah, you bet we can do it, but it'll take four triple tractor trailers. And Jim Nicholson, ever the Sharpie, says, well, how about hash? Well, that would cut it down to just two trailers. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you know what? We want to do this because we want to create this moral dilemma for the audience. Well, not really the audience, for the critics, for the, the, the people from the MPAA, Jack Valenti types. We want to add them to think this is awful, this is terrible. 
We never say that it's cocaine. It's just the white powder. We just do it. So you can say it's China white, it's heroin, it's the worst. Whatever is the worst in your mind, that's what I want. I want that to happen. And you will have forgotten that by the end of the first song. Because I already knew this, what we were going to do with these songs on the rides. So we shot the film. We did everything we had to do. Uh, we forgot to shoot the ending. We shot that two weeks after. We had wrapped the film. And great producer I was, right? And, but unfortunately, the motorcycles, the, the two belly bikes and the one Captain America that were left, because we blew one up on film, had been stolen along with 11 other motorcycles from this guy's uh, shop out in Simi Valley. Wouldn't you know Simi Valley? And so that was the only campfire where you don't see any part of the bike. Right, right. I read that in the book. Yeah, I think you were in production 50 years ago this week. You guys, according to the book, if I'm tracking it right, because well, Kennedy had been assassinated, Robert Kennedy's assassinated, and you guys were either in Louisiana or on your way to Wichita, Texas. Wichita Falls, Texas. Wichita Falls, excuse me. And so you were in production, you were still in production. Well. It's going to be 50 years old next as year. As we were writing it, Martin Luther gets knocked off. Right. Which knocked me back, too, a lot. Um, it was... This year, no, let me back it up right to the beginning. I was born at 61st and Park at the Leroy Sanitarium. And I was born Friday the 23rd of February, 1940, at the Leroy Sanitarium at seven minutes after 12 noon. I started the film, Easy Rider, running film through its gates in New Orleans, at on Friday the 23rd of February 1968 at 7 minutes after 11 in New Orleans 7 minutes after 11 is 7 minutes after 12 in New York City this year Friday the 23rd of February 19 uh, 2018 I at 7 minutes after 9 in the morning it was the time I was born and the time I started shooting Easy Rider and my birthday this year when I turned 78. Interesting. You into numerology and stuff nope. like that? <laughs> Everybody else is for me. Uh -huh. I hear lots about it from other people. Do you know who you are? Yeah, I think I do. <laughs> tell us tell us what your dad thought of, of, of Easy Rider. Oh, he, you know, I brought him down to show it. And, of course, many he's told the story different ways since that moment. But um, it was a rough cut. And uh, I went back to see him at his house after. He didn't watch the four-hour hopper cut, did he? He watched. Uh, <laughs> it was. We had it down to. No, actually, we had it down to ninety-six minutes. Okay. We we kicked Hopper out of the editing okay. room after, <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a after twenty-two story weeks. Too. Man, I yeah. mean, give me a break. <laughs> I know. I mean, after all, twenty-two weeks, we gave him some coke, a, a fur coat for his girlfriend, and sent him off to house. <laughs> And then yeah. Ravelson, Nicholson came in to, sh to cut his shit. And Ravelson, myself, and my partner, Bill Hayward, we all went in with Don Cameron, the, the editor, uh -huh. who had been a music editor, fortunately, before. And we cut the film down to 96 minutes because you can't show a four-hour four film. And uh, that's what Hopper had. There's so, many, there's so many great stories in the book about the production of, and about Hopper kicking Crosby, Stills, and Nash out of, the, out of the studio by saying, you guys write in limos, you couldn't possibly understand my movie. But 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 get yeah, back his to your, movie right yeah uh -huh. get back to, get back to your dad's reaction because it's interesting he in said you know son, context of your relationship I think, it's, I think it's really thin I mean you know we don't know where you're going and why you're going there I said well sure we do 
No, you know, I said, yeah. Dennis says, I'm going down to Mardi Gras. I'm going to be start Mardi Gras queen. Oh, that's, no, that's not enough. That's too thin. I said, well, Dad, why don't you take the journey as we take it and see what we see and discover the America that we're discovering? Um, no, nah, it's too thin, son. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you that. It's just not enough in there. And I realized it just went over his head because for everybody I'm going to be talking to, they know. They know exactly what we're doing and what we're talking about, and they're going to be with us on the roll. And when millions of dollars started to pour in, <laughs> and it also changed cinema, it changed the studio system. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a groundbreaking film in so many ways. Did he... I never heard about it from him. He never, he never uh, had second I, thoughts no, or a second opinion I never opinion heard about, about it. it, but I heard about it from others whom he would tell about it. And when it was this huge success... He then started describing 12 Angry Men, which is a brilliant film that he had read as this teleplay by Reginald Rose that Signal Met was going to direct as a television show. He said, no, we're going to do this as a motion picture. My father hated the idea that he was oh, a leading man. Oh, I forgot he man. produced it. Yeah, 12 he, Angry Men. He hated being a leading man. The, the phrase leading man made him cringe. He wanted to be, he always thought of himself as a character actor. He called himself, I'm a journeyman actor. Well, we love that term here. Well, how about this? There he is making 12 Angry Men with 11 of the top character actors in the business. <laughs> yeah. He was in hog heaven. Yeah, he yeah. was wild. And he then later, he said, well, I guess he, uh, 12 Angry Men was my easy writer. That's the way he wow. talked about it. Yeah, that's really far out. You, you, uh, now I know why you have your homework, because you've got my book right there. <laughs> it's, uh, well, I was saying, before we turn the mics on, and I'll say this to our listeners, it's not only a great read, but it's, it's, a, uh, it's a production guide for the making of Easy Rider. It, <laughs> it takes you through the entire movie, step by step, shooting day by shooting day, including all of Hopper's meltdowns. Oh, man, they were meltdowns. <laughs> oh, you have no idea, man. You know, that whole fight in Tony and Karen's room. Oh, it's... Oh, we will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. There needs to be a making of uh, Easy Rider. Well, movie. Unfortunately, I now talk know. about a movie that didn't need one, but Easy Rider. There was a sequel. <laughs> Ill advised. Uh, talk about an unnecessary sequel. Oh wait. <laughs> I do a little Twitter every now and then, and I'll from time to time say, I'll probably say tonight, I had a wonderful time. I talked to such and such. I was in this show. I was Gilbert, and we were doing this radio thing. And, oh, wait. Hashtag Trump Russia. Hashtag Trump Russia. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. Um, it's It's been a, quite an interesting career I've had. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean... Bob, Bob Mitchum's son to turn me on a pot, why not? And uh, Terry Southern to come along and, and give us this great panache written by Peter Fonda, Dennis Harper, and Terry Southern. Now we'll take a little pause and say, came time for shooting uh, credits. This is a whole, it's called shooting credits, but to put credits on the film. I got a call from uh, Schneider and he said, um, I think you should come down to my office and talk to me. So I patted down the, the halls to his office, and he said, have a seat. And this is, he had not been like that at all, so I expect, whoa, what's coming? Uh, Dennis wants to take your name off the writing credits. 
What? Yes, he wants to take your name off the writing credits. I said, Fonda, I know. You told me the story four times, and that's why I gave him the money. The movie we're looking now on, at, on screen, the movie we're looking at is the same thing you told me. I'm a happy man. I invested in this film. It looks great. But he wants your name off the writing credits. <laughs> Jesus Christ, on a crutch. Uh, okay, um, let me think about that. He said, I don't think you should, but go ahead. I came back a little later and I said, okay, based on an original story by Peter Fonda, just trying to keep the things calm with Hopper. And uh, Schneider said, you know what? I think you're making the mistake, but I'll tell him that. Great. The next day I went back to Columbia Studios and Schneider gave me a call. Hey, come on down to my office, Fonda. So I went down and we had a few tokes and we're talking and uh, he said, uh, Hopper won't go for it. Hopper won't go for what? An original story by Peter Fonda. I said, you're fucking kidding me. No, he says that he, he can't get nominated for an original screenplay if it's based on somebody else's story. I said, fuck. Okay, we go back to the contract that he signed. We're, we're in alphabetical order, Fonda, Hopper, and Southern. That's how it'll be. Shoot the titles. Hopper never forgave me. Tried to get my name off that over and over and over again. Went to his grave saying that he and he alone wrote Easy Rider. Seymour Cassell is still alive, and he lives in New York, so you guys can get a hold of him. Oh, you can. Because he's going to tell you this story. Love him. That we flew down to New Orleans, and the first day of shooting happened to be Friday the 23rd of February, 1968, and we had, having had, which is a phrase in uh, movies mean having had the meal, whatever the meal is, having had breakfast in this case, 6.30 in the morning at the, the Airport Hilton Hotel in New Orleans. We're out in the parking lot, and there's Dennis. We're surrounding him like a huddle of a, an NFL game, and he's wagging his finger at us, telling each of us at the top of his lungs, which I won't do now, but you can get it at the top of his lungs. This is my fucking movie, and nobody's taking my fucking movie away from me. Over and over and over again for almost two hours. Didn't add any more words than that. Seymour Cassell will tell you that's what happened. He ran out of voice, so I could stuff him. I mean, here's the producer. I threw him. Oh, I threw away my wristwatch in, in the movie, but I'm the producer's looking at my wristwatch. Well, we blew the opening of the parades because just like in Pamplona, you have to start when the parades start. We had all the permits. I'd done all my my business as a producer, uh, but I didn't ex ex expect two hours of the first part of the day to be burned up by, this is my fucking movie and no one's taking my fucking movie away from me. Well, did you guys ever make the piece over the years, Peter? I tried the best I could. Yeah. I know I say you say in the book you followed his work, you, you, you saw oh, his yeah. movies, you reached out. I did, many times. Yeah. I wrote more uh, stories for us to do. Mm-hmm. But he just... Uh, no. And... It, well, he was he was suing me whilst I was making the hired hand. But, so he comes through. <laughs> he comes through Santa Fe on his way up to Taos, and he wants to stop. And he wants me to give him some joints. Right? Fuck. What am I doing this for? This asshole. 
Oh, yeah, sure. Here's some joints. Oh, man. Oh, that's cool. Thanks very much, man. He's suing me while he's doing this. <laughs> well, I'm suing we show, Gilbert. We show up at court with his contract, and the judge throws it out in summary. Because you can see by the contract and the spreadsheets, I have given Hopper more than I was contractually obliged to give him. My contract with him was he got so much money as a, as a director and actor, and then he got one-third of my company's gross profits. Now, gross profits was defined as those monies that the Pando company earned from the distribution of the easy of the movie motion picture Easy Rider, minus uh, standard industry accounting and legal. Well, when you want to audit Columbia Pictures, it's a very expensive deal. I never nicked Hopper for a, a dime or a penny out of that stuff. I gave him actually basically one third of my gross profits, one third of my gross my company's gross. So I gave him much more than I had to. In that case, the judge threw it out and kept throwing it out, and he kept suing me. And and I remember, I was talking to you this off, uh, Mike. Naturally, what stuck in my head, in your career, you did a movie where you did something that I've, uh, I've masturbated about several times. <laughs> You fucked Jane Fonda. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I had another film called um, uh, called Gemini, which was a brother and sister film, and they have sex. And uh, I, you know, I showed it to Jane, and she thought Vadim could direct it, and that was great. But it didn't go anywhere, unfortunately. So I actually wrote a, a, a screenplay about doing. Uh, doing triple X movies and my father would be in it and we have this house. It's like a long house, <laughs> typical California long house. And my father would be in the front of the house and in the back of the house, Jean and I were making pornographic films and somehow Jane comes up with Vadim to direct it. That Vadim is going to come in and take it from what we have as this arty film and put into a big film and he's going to make a film with Doris Day and Tony Randall. <laughs> and, wow. you know, what we're going to you know, it's, it's do, it's too long for me to tell the story. I've already talked too much story to you guys. But nevertheless, let me tell you, it was really far out because Jane and I were just background extras in the film that I had Vadim directing this X-rated, this pornographic film. It was really a good story, too. This, this Gemini it was an excellent story. Could have been, what, like Boogie Nights ahead of its time. Way ahead of its yeah, time. Yeah, And you, um, years later, you'd be working with your father, Wanda Nevada. Oh, yeah. And and he wrote you a letter after it was over. Oh, he did. And um, He's fun, by the way, as the prospector. Isn't he? Yeah. Well, you know, up to that point, he really had thought that I was just a loose cannon on the deck. I'm the grenade with the pen pulled and the spoons dropped, and I'm going to blow at any moment. Um, there he is. He's playing one day for me. He's playing this old prospector, uh, Dutch Gravel. Actually, it's Dutch Gravel, but, you know, we call him Dutch Gravel for the hell of it. It sounded better. And so he worked for me that day, and it was, that was, that's a story that you don't need to hear, though it's quite interesting about how that day starts. It ends up with him writing me a letter after he had finished, and it was about two weeks later. 
And he said in the letter he's tried to do this. He started doing this so many days, but everything got in his way. I knew he was dying. And nevertheless, this is five pages written on both sides of the, the paper. Of the, Each page was written on both sides. And he talks about all this stuff and how he's tried to do this and he's been doing that, but that's this and this, that. And um, at the end of the letter, he says, in my 41 years of making motion pictures, I have never seen a crew so devoted to their director. And you're a really good director, son. Please remember me for your company. I understood what he meant. <clears throat> John Ford had a company, and he would have all these oh, sure. actors that move with him, and that's what my father meant. Please remember him for my company. And... Uh, He wrote down on the letter, I love you very much. <laughs> I'd never heard that from him. And if I didn't have this great company, this great team with me, I never would have gotten that letter. So I thanked everybody. That's nice. And a, spe a special moment for, oh, the yeah. two, for the two of you. Yeah, it was great. That's nice. And it was then, really great. That is a nice story. Then it Beautiful. happened one more time right before he died. Actually, absolutely. Um, I was directing a commercial, and uh, I got the call that he's gone to the hospital, and it was probably the last time, so... I went to see, I call it Cedars of Cyanide. But uh, there he was in this room, and uh, I walked in, and his fifth wife was there. I call her Mrs. Henry Fonda the Fifth, and Jane, and the commie prevert, that'd be Tom Hayden, <laughs> and myself. And my father was wherever he was in his moment. He finally kind of came to, he opened up his beautiful big eye, blue eyes, he looked first at Mrs. Henry Fonda V, opening and like this. Opening and You can't see this, you piece of fucking shit. Uh, opening and closing, looking at, at Shirley like this. And then looking at his firstborn, Jane, closing one eye and opening and closing it like, like a drunk trying to figure what's the right path to take down this road, you know, so I don't get hit by shit. And um, he looked at the commie prevert. And then he looked at me, and both of his eyes opened up, and he said, I want you to know, son, I love you very much. He laid his head down, and he didn't come back. That's called closure. I'm a very lucky man. Thanks for sharing that with us, Peter. You bet. Work being told by your people. Does Peter have to run out of here before we can ask him another question? Does I may he... have to piss in this bottle. But... <laughs> <laughs> before you run away, we're going to ask you, what's your favorite Henry Fonda performance? Oh, uh, My Darling Clementine. Yeah, mine too. Glad you said that. And followed closely so by, 12 by, by uh, uh, Oxbow Incident. Oh, yes. And then followed right up on heels by the 12 Angry Men. Yeah. He's so vulnerable in, in My Darling Clementine. Oh my He's God, so, yes. he, there's so much range in that, in that performance. It's a thing of beauty. It is. Best yeah. thing Victor Mature ever did. 
Victor Mature's daughter is on great. Facebook, and she, she have to connect he you to her. He was great in that film. He, really great. I was so happy to see him have that role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't know he had witnessed the lynching as a kid. Uh, Dad did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, His father took him down to his printing office in speaking, Omaha. Speaking of Oxbow incident. Yeah, yeah, really. Speaking of Oxbow incident. Yeah. And he watched the uh, lynching of a black man, and he was just a kid. He was Amazing. 14. Amazing. So we we always we like to jokingly say on this show with guests that we ne- we didn't scratch the surface, but here it is really true. <laughs> there is so much. There is so much to your life story. There's so much in this book. There's a second one coming out. <laughs> really? Oh yeah. There's been too much happening. What the hell? <laughs> we didn't ask you about knowing Raul Walsh and 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 all and all of these these wonderful journeyman actors you work with. So we hope you come back and and play it with us again. It would be my pleasure. Absolutely, my pleasure. Good. Meantime, I'm going to cast your voice in this thing called uh, it's but, liquid but skin, I'm, I'm not liquid, in bandage. That. liquid bandage, liquid bandage, liquid bandage. Oh, you got a role for Gilbert? I thought it was Gilbert's voice. I thought for sure <laughs> I know that voice. It's so distinctive, and I thought, great, Gilbert's making some cash. This is cool. I'm so happy. <laughs> I really did. You know. I also just wanted to tell our listeners that Peter, we met Peter uh, a bunch of months ago. Gilbert and I were down at yes. Tribeca interviewing Barry Levinson. And I said, Peter Fonda's in the hallway. Let's go grab him. Yeah, and we pretty much grabbed you. <laughs> it was like it, yeah. was like it, Jerry, was cool. it was like Jerry Lewis being accosted by De Niro yes. in The King of Comedy. <laughs> that's cool. I like that. That's yeah. a great. You were so nice to us. <laughs> what a, uh, That's cool. I like that very much. Thanks so much for coming. You know, and, well, I've been here promoting... Uh, boundaries, yeah, new which film. is uh, a very interesting film where we're smoking pot like we never did before. Yeah. And, and the interesting part for me is there's Christopher Plummer, who is the finest Shakespearean actor in the Americas on film or stage. Period. I promise you. And so the sh- the finest Shakespearean actor in the Americas is dealing pot to Easy Rider. How fucking cool is that? Don't you love the movies? It's a great movie, too, uh, Boundaries. It's, you know, Vera Farmiga's film. She's fabulous. She's such a great actor. And the writer, director, Shana Festi, she's fabulous. Her crew was fabulous. Her company was great. It made it all great for us. And that's actually why I'm supposed to be here, but we've talked to everything but that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, we promise Gary Springer we'll get this up right cool. a, right away. Okay, and also I want to tell our listeners to rent Yulee's Gold, which you were nominated for an Oscar for, and film. you are absolutely wonderful in Thank that movie. You. Heartbreaking. Thank you very much, Gilbert. And and, and I was uh, I want you to know I was a hundred percent honest when I said I jerked off about having sex with your sister. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so filthy, Gilbert. <laughs> I think it actually is your name on the liquid band-aid thing. <laughs> Do you think this would cur- cur- keep the dirt out? You don't know anything. Oh, keep the dirt out. Until the, the rush goes over the mouth. I really thought it was you, man. I yeah. thought, you know, you're going to be so pleased when I said, I'd listen to that. And every time I think it's you. I will continue to listen to it. <laughs> okay. And I will continue to believe and tell everybody else, that's actually Gilbert Gottfried, my yeah. friend. <laughs> Come back and play with us another time. We have much, much more to talk to you about. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santopadre. And we've been talking to the man who knows what it's like to be dead. (laughs) Peter Fonda. The great Peter Fonda. Thank you very much. Peter, this was a thrill for us. Yeah, Frank, it's a, a thrill. It was great to sit with you guys and talk story like this. How cool is that? Thank you, buddy.
Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to Paul Rayburn, John Murray, John Fodiatis, and Nutmeg Creative. Especially Sam Giovanco and Daniel Farrell for their assistance. Get some